Hello and welcome to Beds Unrestricted, episode 32. It's Friday, the 3rd of September, 2021. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. My name's Dan Club, and I'm going to be your host this week. Um, I'm joined as ever by my trusty co-host, Dave Comerford. Dave, first of all, how are we? Um, and are you enjoying the start of the international break, our favourite time of year? Well, do you know what? It really annoys me that um, the international break has has three games in it. Um, I think the last sort of four have now. Um, I just think it's the demands on players and stuff are, are pretty ridiculous. Um, it looks like it's going to go back to the standard two game one, which will make it less of a less of a pain, I suppose, because you'd be less concerned about your players' fatigue and fitness and all that. But I guess it's a bit been a bit of a frustrating time for us with the uh, the end of the transfer window and stuff, and the sort of slow realization that we weren't going to do anything else. But but yeah, I'll try and <laughs> I'll try and move on from that as best I can. Yeah, I think this international break hits a little bit harder because obviously we've just kind of started getting into the full swing of things. Obviously, we played Chelsea last and you think big Premier League game, you know, the Premier League domestic football's really started um, and then instantly everyone goes away and plays three games against Andorra and Moldova and it's a little bit, a little bit frustrating, I suppose is probably the right word. Um, anyway, our guest this week is Tom. Tom Holmes, a sports journalist and, of course, a Liverpool fan. Tom, thanks for joining us. Um, how are we and how do you find international football? Thanks for having me on, guys. Um, I I don't know. For me, it always depends on what I'm doing on the weekend of an international break because um, I'll never watch the games. Um, so if it's, you know, this weekend I'm, I've got a friend's birthday, so it means I can spend the whole of Saturday and Sunday doing stuff with friends and not having to worry about football, which is is nice um it's but obviously when it's when i don't have plans it's a bit more where's the football where why haven't i got the football on it you're right it has come in at an annoying time it all this one always always does the start it always feels like it's way too early in the season um i guess the the, the trade-off is that post christmas you only have kind of one international break between christmas and the end of the season which always feels a bit nicer but you do have that kind of those those three always feel like they come along too quickly before christmas um and you never, I'm never ready for a break after three weeks. It just feels too soon. Yeah, it definitely does. Like I say, um, it felt like we were just really getting kick-started and then away they go. But anyway, um, we're going to look into something a little bit uh, different this week in a second. But first and foremost, we need to do our Who Am I segment of the show. Um, and I've taken heed of Dave's warning about Eras. Um, and I believe he'll be fully aware of who this individual is. So he was signed in, sorry, he was signed in July 2011 by Kenny Dalglish. Um, he was the second signing that summer um, from a Liverpool perspective. Um, he was born in, oh God, this is so easy. He was born the 10th of December, 1985. Um, he made his Liverpool debut on the 13th of August, 2011. His last appearance for Liverpool came on the 23rd of August 2012, so we didn't last very long. Um, he was born, here we go, he was born in Dundee, Scotland. Feel free to chime in whenever anyone likes. Um, he also played for Rangers, Ross County, St Mirren, Stoke, Reading and Blackpool. 
Oh, Charlie Adam. Charlie Adam. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> yeah, Who do you know what? Blackpool. I was thinking Danny Wilson for a second, but I thought I think okay. I remember that pick with with Hodgson, um, that infamous pick. Um, and I think um, what's his name, Milan Jovanovic as well, was on that photo. But that's right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Danny Wilson would have been a good shout, but yeah, I knew, I knew as soon as I said the word Blackpool, I was in yeah, trouble. Yeah, that was the one. Um, but yeah, very good. Um, congratulations. Um, but we will move on to the what I described earlier this week when talking to Dave as ripping the plaster off, because we're gonna look at Liverpool's long-term plan. Um, in the wake of news that Michael Edwards could be leaving the club um, and how that could affect things moving forward. And I think James Pearce wrote an article this week and kind of snuck in what we all knew was happening, but that Jurgen Klopp is likely to leave um, in 2024. So I'll come to you first, Tom, on this situation. So on Michael Edwards' departure, um, he's expected to step down at the end of the year when his contract naturally comes to its conclusion. Um, does that worry you at all? Or do you think the club will have contingencies in place and it's expected that his current assistant, Julian Ward, will take over the mantle? Um, does, we've all lauded Edwards in the past for his business, not necessarily this summer, um, but does his departure worry you at all? Yes and no. Um, yes, it does worry me because he's really, really good at his job. And whenever people who are really, really good at their jobs step down, that should always be a concern. There should always be question marks over whether or not the person who replaces them it is good enough. Um, so, yes, uh, what I would say is obviously we have the structure in place. We have, I don't think our targets are going to massively change. I don't think our plan is going to massively change. I don't think the way we do business is going to massively change. So to that extent, I'm not not concerned about that. I'm not concerned that the, the behind the scenes is going to need a massive overhaul. And to an extent, it's difficult to say exactly how much of a role Edwards plays in the kind of day-to-day, exactly how much of what how many signings is him. However, the, the question has to be asked, is the person who comes in to replace him going to be as good at doing things like getting 15 million quid for Jordan Ive or you know, you know, negotiating stuff like the Navi Cater deal, which we all thought was amazing, or getting, you know, Tiago for five million quid outright or whatever it was. You know, um, you know, five million quid that summer, I should point, I should say. But you know, we we it's gonna be difficult to say exactly how much of the success that we have is going to continue in terms of our canniness in the transfer window, but obviously we know that there's not gonna be any big structural changes, we know there's not gonna be any big shifts in the way we do business which I think is reassuring it seems like there'll be a relatively smooth transition uh, and Julian Ward has obviously got about I would imagine he's about as prepared as, he ever, as he's ever going to be he's got the whole of this season to work with Edwards I would be very very surprised if he wasn't working very closely on kind of transition stuff over this summer anyway you'd be surprised um, I guess the only real question mark is is whether or not he's good enough at doing what Edwards does to fill the void adequately yeah, I think you're dead right in terms of, you know, if it is in the pipeline that Edwards is going to leave, we have got a full year and another transfer window for Julian Ward to really work closely with him. And I think the article touched upon how impressed people have been with Julian Ward's um, sort of acumen in that department. So it would make sense that he'd be the natural successor. Um, I'll come to you, Dave. Do you share the same sort of sentiments that... We've all lauded, like I say, Edwards, in particular for the money he's managed to recoup from sales of players 
um, in particular players that we weren't particularly um, going to use, like, you know, Tom mentions Jordan Ibe, I think Dominic Solanke comes into the same bracket, and there's probably Danny Ward, there's probably a few others. Um, so does it concern you that a key component of the uh, of the backroom could leave? You know, I've got to echo what, what Tom said in, in a lot of ways, I think. Michael Edwards is simply like one of the best in the world at, at what he does. Um, you know, you both alluded to his pretty outstanding track record. And obviously that extends beyond, you know, recruiting players, you know, obviously negotiating, like you've said, um, contract when you or things like that. Um, and one thing that, that stood out from the James Pierce article you mentioned was a line where he says that Edwards and his ability as a negotiator has basically made the FSG model work um, and allowed us to, you know, win what we have despite the constraints that we're working under, which I think is a very important point. Having obviously, you know, Ward in places as that ready-made successor is really important rather than, you know, having to maybe look externally, which could lead to a bit of a delay, put the club in kind of stasis um, for a period. Um, and the hope will be that we've really created like a culture. Um, obviously, Edwards will have been at the centre of that, but the hope will be that what he's created and what he's fashioned will outlast him and will just sort of be, you know, the club's kind of identity going forward. I think one thing we have to consider though is why is it that he's actually leaving? Um, and clearly we've just got to speculate on that, but if he's reached the end of his contract, it could just be something completely innocent and it could be that he wants a break. It could be that he wants a new challenge. Um, although, on that, apparently there aren't any other clubs involved in his decision, so it's not a case of him being kind of lured away or anything like that. So you wonder why it is. And I know someone on Twitter joked that he's leaving because he has nothing to do. <laughs> but um, that's probably a bit unfair considering the uh, the contract renewals and stuff that I'm sure he would have had a key role in. So, you know, and there's another thing that Pierce mentioned. In kind of three years' time, we'll reach sort of the the end of an era with kind of with the team that we have now, this kind of iconic team winding down and also the manager probably moving on as well. So this is almost the moment where we're trying to lay the groundwork for that. So you could argue that he's leaving at the moment where he'd be needed most. You know, you could make that case, which I think is another important point to consider. But what, what do you reckon, Dan? What was your kind of reaction to it were you worried or were you feeling quite calm about the future uh, if i'm honest I, I was i was really calm um and for all the reasons i'm going to discuss in a little while when we come on to clock um really leaving because as much as um fsg are criticized for a lot of the work they've done um, and rightly so in in some circles not to the extent we sometimes see but in terms of business sense they are very unlikely to miss. Um, so when something like this comes out, and it's not necessarily confirmed that Edwards will leave yet. I know, you know, it looks that way, but there are still sort of negotiations ongoing. But I just don't see um, the owners not having Julian Ward, for instance, to be the next best man for the job. I just think they are so in tune with what needs to happen. They'll get it right again. And that might be optimistic, and as we know on here, I ever I always am optimistic, but I just don't see them not having a contingency that's bulletproof. 
if I'm honest. Um, and I know we criticise them for not necessarily putting their hands in the pocket and not necessarily buying players that we all believe as fans that we need. But when it comes to sort of planning and sort of getting the right people in place, we can't really argue with what they've done in the past because they brought Michael Edwards in the first place um, and promoted him through the ranks to get to where he is now. They've also put Jurgen Klopp in place, plus all his staff. And let's not forget, as much as we don't like it, they've pretty much bought the entire squad that we currently have. And I know, you know, we're going to come on to the squad in more depth in a second. It is ageing, it is this, it is that, it is the other. And it probably could have done with fresh enough. But they don't get much wrong when it comes to the infrastructure of the club. And they make some stupid decisions, but they don't get much wrong when it comes to the infrastructure. So I'm relatively content that we'll be okay after Edwards, if I'm honest. Um, but you're dead right to point out the fact that it's going to come at a pivotal time because much of the talk this last week has been next summer's the big summer for Liverpool, which is something we've heard for quite a few years now, as we know. But it really does feel like it. And it feels like it because we've tied down a lot of the key players, obviously, over the past few weeks. The likes of Alisson, Van Dijk, Robertson, Fabinho. Um, and they're all approaching an age that there might have to be a big sort of sea change, certainly when it comes to the front three, Sal and Mane and Firmino. So the next step in this, the next evolution in this squad is massive. So I'll come to you, Tom. Um, there was a tweet earlier this week from uh, John O'Sullivan, uh, not one we had with us earlier, um, a different one. Um, so basically saying, wake up to what's coming. Um, and the collapse is going to be catastrophic, which got nigh on four and a half thousand, five and a half thousand likes, I should say. Um, so in terms of the squad, all being, you know, pretty much beyond 30, 31, 32, by the time Klopp probably leaves in 2024, do you see a danger in allowing this whole sort of collective to, to grow old together? Um, and do you think it should have been freshened up before now? I think there's always a danger when you've got a manager like Klopp who really, really likes players and really gets to know players personally and really is quite a people person and connects really well with the squad that he will have blind spots. Um, and we've seen Klopp before has kind of had blind spots and it wouldn't surprise me if this is going to be an issue. It wouldn't be a surprise if we did see this kind of recur. However, what I would say is that, you know, equally the team know that they need as you said, FSG know that there needs to be a freshening up. There needs to be changes made to the squad and there will need to be players brought in. Um, and I think, you know, the, the issues are going to be kind of in different places. Um, so we've already seen, you know, the central midfield is going to be a big issue in the sense that you've got Henderson turning 30, 40, over 33. Those two obviously are going to be big names. Milner will be comfortably gone by 2024. So we will have, you know, Fabinho at 30, I think will be fine. But there will be kind of two or three issues there. But then you already look out, we've got the likes of Harvey Elliott coming through, we've got the likes of Curtis Jones coming through. Um, and obviously we don't know who else is going to be coming out of the academy in the next kind of five, 10 years. The academy's record recently hasn't been great, but obviously the like Trent is obviously the big name recently. And as we say, Harvey Elliott and Curtis Jones, if those two are both successes, then that certainly bodes well. Um, and then, yeah, the, the front three is the big one, but obviously we've already brought in Jota. Um, and I think we will, I'd be very surprised if we didn't bring in a young attacker next summer who would be ready to challenge the front three straight away. 
And I think that's kind of the challenge for Klopp at the moment is that transition. Um, how do you do a transition uh, when you've got players that you are essentially wedded to? When you're wedded to the current front three, how do you phase them in, phase them out? Um, and I think that's maybe where maybe where this comes down to Klopp's blind spot. I think I think we probably should have brought in a forward this summer. Yeah, it's not a controversial opinion to say that. Um, but nevertheless, if Klopp's turning, you know, if Klopp is internally saying, you know, I'm I'm going to play for me, I'm going to play for me no 35 league games. I'm going to play Mane 35 league games. I, I trust them both completely, and I'm not willing to phase either of them out. Then that's a different question because then you're looking at do you bring in a player who is only going to be fifth choice, or do you bring in a player who can challenge a front three that Klopp doesn't want to see challenged in the same way? Um, obviously Jota's getting more minutes. He will be in three years, 27. So he'll be hitting his prime in a, 27, 28 in a few years. So he'll be hitting his prime at the right time. Um, but I do think it is a challenge. I do think it is an issue. And this is where we have to, it's annoying, but we have to trust the process. And as you say, this is this is the, the club that brought in the current squad. Um, we, we can't just put all of that on one person. We can't just put all of that on Klopp. Um, so it remains to be seen whether or not the club have got a long-term strategy might I don't think it's going to be a catastrophic collapse I mean the, the reality is we haven't seen anything over the last five years to suggest that the club is going to poorly replace certain individuals uh, admittedly we've not had to do a wholesale change of the squad but as you pointed out they have brought in this whole squad they can clearly identify good players they can clearly bring in good players so and we've already got the likes of Joe Gomez and uh, Canate those two could easily be the centre-back partnership in 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 five years you know there's every possibility that in five years' time, the only player out of our back five who really needs to be phased out is Robertson, if you consider Canate and Van Dijk and Gomez fighting for two spots. So it's only really mm. the front three, as you pointed out, that, that I think an issue. Yeah, I think the front three probably are most people sort of where they look at in terms of the age and in terms of how long they've been together as a three as well. I think we all kind of can see at some point something's going to have to give there. And you dead right to point at Jota and say he's almost one of that next front three. And it's where the other two are coming from. I think we all expected one of them maybe to be signed this summer. Um, and not necessarily play all the time, but certainly phase one of them out maybe. And it hasn't happened. So, But the main point there for me, and I'm going to bring Dave in on this, is, is Klopp's like unwavering trust in people and that can be at times I think that and his substitutions are probably the biggest two criticisms I've got of Jurgen Klopp because it's probably the nicest possible trait to have in many ways that he trusts his players just completely but we can look at it slightly more objectively and look at the likes of I, I'd use Cater and Oxley Chamberlain as, as an example this summer in particular because he's talking about them too. And even Minamino and Origi, he's talking about those players as if they can be trusted members of this first team squad. And I'm not sure they can, um, if I'm honest. Um, and that's probably the biggest and harshest criticism I could give to Jurgen Klopp is he obviously loves these people as individuals as well as footballers, which is nice. But I just wish he could be a little bit more ruthless and just say he's going to get injured at some point because we can almost all see it, but for whatever reason, he can't. But I'm going off piece anyway. Um, Dave, I'll bring you in on the on the point more generally, I suppose, and the dangers of allowing this crop of world-class footballers we've got to grow all together um, and how you see that transition happening 
do you see it being phased or do you see one foul swoop next summer? Well, you know, it doesn't seem like that long ago that we were kind of looking at, at what we had as, as quite a young team and thinking about what it could achieve long term. But now it's kind of with the exception of Trent, when you look at the actual first 11, I suppose pretty much every player in there uh, in the midst of their peak years or in, in one, maybe two cases, maybe just beginning to decline now. So you get the sense that we've got to kind of maximise our opportunities in the coming years with this team. Um, and maybe that's one of the reasons why the lack of transfer activity has caused so much frustration because, you know, you want to, whilst you have all these players kind of peaking, you want to make sure that you've got kind of the squad around them um, to compete properly. So I think if Liverpool want to still be competing for the top honours when we get to kind of the midpoint of this decade, then it's clear that they have to start assembling kind of the next the next generation, the next team, if you like. And I think Tom has kind of alluded to the players that are there already who will probably be part of that. So Trent Gomez and Canate, obviously. Curtis Jones will, will be if he can kind of kick on. Um, Elliot and, and Jossard as well. So there are some important pieces already in place, but then, you know, as, as Tom mentioned, there's areas where you can't really see that succession plan yet, like above all the front three. So that's going to be an important focus in, in the next few windows, bringing in players who are either long-term replacements or players who can be phased in more quickly in place of those who are already showing signs of decline. Like, for example, some people would have wanted us to go and buy, you know, a, a young number nine this summer, someone like uh, Blavic. Um, or Marlon or Daka, who are, who are pretty young and who could um, challenge Firmino based on his, his struggles over the past couple of years, really. So, you know, we know that this process can't be kind of left too late. It has to be carried out over a number of years in the interest of, of having that stability. And, you know, another thing Tom said, there will be academy players that emerge too. And I don't, I don't think the track record's great recently either. It seems like we've used the academy more as a source of of funds and a source of, you know, of players. But, you know, there will be one or two. I think that's the thing. There'll be one or two. Maybe like Kate Gordon, for example. I know Connor Bradley is really highly rated as well. Um, although he might have to change position to get into the side. But there'll be one or two of them who, who can come through as well. So it won't, you won't need a total transfer focus. But one thing I want to ask you, and I'll kind of put this to both of you, I always... I've always had the impression or you know recently that Liverpool have been this extremely well-run club um and almost had the sense that other teams are looking at us enviably and then we can look at them and kind of smugly in a way um if that's a word and just and think oh god imagine imagine being in that kind of state but like are you just starting to get the sense at the moment that we're making some you know, questionable decisions that we might not be as as well run as as kind of we have been in this kind of club heyday. Um, for for me, I, I certainly think in the aftermath of this window that's just gone, that a lot of the narrative at the minute is kind of like Liverpool haven't strengthened, so they'll be miles away. That is the only really like, and I know I keep going back to this this transfer window and, and our inactivity, but. That, for me, is a glaring omission. And when your rivals have strengthened, and that's one thing I can see our rivals looking at us and going, maybe they're not that well run. 
you know, that I agree with that in that sense. Um, because, like I say, I just think our net spend has kind of been a, a shining light for us over the past few years. We kind of bask in the fact that we've been so successful without really breaking the bank. Um, and it gets to the point whereby I think we all expected a lot more this summer. And we've ended up making, I think it's four point odd million profit. And it's like everyone else has, you know, gone out and bought 90 million, 100 pound players, which I don't expect us to do. And nobody really expects us to do that. But to come out of it with another profit, I mean, it's well run, obviously, because you want to make profit as a business. But at the same time, you know, when you want to compete at the very top end of football, you can't necessarily make a profit every transfer window. So maybe we aren't the envy of everyone else, does that make sense? Like, for the first time, this one has felt like, yeah, you're probably right, we're almost envious of what other clubs can go and do. It certainly looks like that. Um, I'll bring you in, Tom. Do you have the same feelings or anything different? Um, yes and no. I think it's worth noting there are clubs like Barcelona, uh, like Juventus to an extent. I mean, Barcelona is obviously the prime example of a club who was spending money for fun two, three years ago and now just look like an absolute complete shambles. Juventus are in a similar state. Of, uh, Real Madrid are not in the best spot. So there are clubs across Europe that have kind of thrown their weight around when they shouldn't have done and, I, and it's coming back to bite them. And I mean, you talk about well-run. I think there is more to being a well-run club than just spending loads of money. Um, and, you know, Man United is a prime example of this. Um, you know, yes, the signings they bought this summer have been good, but they hired 50 new scouts and then went out and bought Cristiano Ronaldo. And, they, and they've left a glaring hole in their midfield as well. But, I mean, you talk to United fan, they're not happy with this window necessarily because they have missed a really glaring hole in their starting eleven. Um, Chelsea, another example, you know, yes, Chelsea have had another really good window, but they bought a player that they let go for 30 million back for 90. So it's not, you know, amazing. And I think there's an acceptance that we're never going to be able to spend the money that City do for, or the PSG do. And I think I think increasingly there's a frustration that we are this kind of, oh, this well-run club, this club that doesn't spend above its means. I think people mm. almost want us to be less well-run. <laughs> I really think that's what some people want. Um, and, I, and, I, and I get that. Like, I get that it's frustrating that every summer we can't, you know, run around and bid 200 million quid for Mbappe or bid 100 million quid for this, bid 100 million for that. It's, it is frustrating and it is annoying. Mm. want to be able to go out and buy the best players every summer and spend loads of money every summer. Um, does that mean that we're less well run? I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, although I agree, I, I agree there's been some poor decisions made this summer. I agree there's been some negligent decisions made this summer. Mm. Um, and I agree that the gloss is starting to go off. I, I think the thing is, it's not just one summer. I think, and I think that's, that's what I think a lot of people understand. I think it has been three or four summers now where we haven't really but three summers where we haven't really spent as much as we needed to. We've kind of done one good transfer windows business in three summers. And I think there's that, there's that frustration that the club has been almost too cautious and, and cautious isn't the same as well run. I, I acknowledge that, but I do think mm. there is, I think there's a level and I, I agree that this is the summer where I think for me personally, the, the scales have started to shift away from us being well run to us being overly cautious. Yeah, I agree with that. I think obviously we've got to bear in mind, obviously the pandemic impact has impacted FSG, bad looks to it. Um, obviously not having fans for period last season, probably always going to be in a worse position. For me, 
I just didn't see us ending this transfer window with Loris Carrius and Divakarigi still at the football club. And that sounds very binary and almost a little bit harsh, but I just, if we were sort of firing on all cylinders, football club, like we have been in the past, that wouldn't have happened. Like those decisions wouldn't have been made. And by, by all accounts, we were trying desperately to sell the likes of Carrius on deadline day. And I just thought that sort of thing. I know it wouldn't have been exactly a wash with suitors, and I know we like to get the best money, but at some point, you've just got to cut your losses, in my opinion, and a decision should have been made to cut losses on those two in particular. So that's one reason I'd say it's slightly tipped the balance this summer for me, and I have grown increasingly frustrated. Um, But something that will frustrate everyone when it does happen, um, we spoke a lot, and we've alluded to the FSG model quite a lot there, um, so I'll come straight back to you, Tom, on this. Um, so Jurgen Klopp, we've kind of alluded to the fact he might leave 2024 um, and his successor, who knows who that'll be yet. I'm going to ask you guys that in a minute, so start thinking. Um, but who, well, whoever it is, what happens if they can't achieve like Klopp has with the same, I suppose, constraints that the FSG model puts on a manager? Um, where do we turn then? I'll come to you, Tom. And I, I mean, that's going to be an interesting team. Do they bring in a Klopp-esque manager who likes to work harder with a smaller group of players who will be almost happier not having to push against the constraints so far as they exist? Or whether they do bring in someone who is an equally world-class manager, a really top talent, who actually wants them to spend more money. And if I think that's where it's going to be interesting. Are they going to bring in someone who is going to be a little bit more accepting of how much money the club spends or are they going to bring in someone who's going to constantly push for more and that's where I think the answer is going to be difficult to see because the reality mm. is we don't know we don't know what the FSG model looks like under a manager that isn't Jurgen Klopp we know mm. that the FSG model works under Jurgen Klopp but we don't know if the mo- how flexible the model is um, I would imagine the reality and we saw under Brendan we saw under Brendan that actually when the manager wanted more power, wanted more say over signings, it, things got a bit ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that will happen. I don't think that will happen this time because the reality is the model kind of... FSG themselves were finding their feet for a few years before Klopp came in anyway. Mm-hmm. So the reality is what the model was supposed to look like fluctuated a little bit under Brendan anyway. Um, but I w- And I would imagine, to be fair, given all we've talked about how good they are at recruiting, they will recruit someone who understands the directive going in, who understands what the situation is going in and won't go against that. Um, but the reality is if we bring in it, it's going to be incredibly difficult to replace Jürgen Klopp. There are very, very few managers in the world who are capable of doing that. And the reality is that FSG might have to pick up some of the slack and whether or not they are willing to do that remains to be seen. You know, um, do we end up in a kind of an Arsenal situation? Not complete Arsenal situation because that club's gone insanely downhill but whether we end up in an Arsenal situation where we don't have the financial backing to push harder to push forwards or do we end up in a this club is big enough to be in a Manchester United situation where it can where it becomes essentially self-sustaining where once the revenues pick itself back up we can essentially transition relatively cleanly to and you and, and yeah Man United haven't been great over the last kind of eight years or so they've not been great they've not been winning as many trophies as they should Mm. but they've still been there or thereabouts top four most seasons they've still been pushing hard most seasons so so i think the question of what a cop successor can't overachieve 
remains to be seen. Uh, but that, but I think that will be the biggest test of FSG. Are they willing to put their hands in their pocket when they need to, not just when fans want them to? Well, yeah, I think, you know, alluding to what FSG will look for is probably the biggest point out of all of this, to be honest, because I just don't envisage them going down the path of, they're going to want a world-class manager, but they're going to want to want one that will work under sort of the same remit as Klopp has. Not someone who's going to go in there and demand the world and potentially rock the boat if they don't get it, because they're not going to get it. Let's not beat around the bush. You know, you're dead right. They might be more flexible than we'll ever know, because Jurgen Klopp seems like he's very happy, very, very happy with the situation and the hands he's been dealt, um, which is great. And that's, that's what we want. But if somebody went in there and wasn't happy, I just don't see FSG bowing down and necessarily putting their hands in the pocket. I'll um, I'll come to you, Dave, anyway. Um, do you echo sort of similar thoughts or have you got a different line of thought? You know, the, the idea about Klopp kind of acquiescing to the FSG model, I think the reason we, all, we have that impression is because he never really challenges them publicly, which is kind of the manager's main weapon in like a press conference. But, you know, we don't know if behind the scenes... You know, there is a bit more kind of disquiet about that. I think when it comes to, you know, the question of what if his successor can't overachieve, I think if we end up with a manager who's merely good um, as opposed to world-class or, you know, best in the world territory like Klopp is, then the worry is that we're going to become a club who simply fights for, for top four rather than competing for the biggest honours because ultimately Chelsea and City just have essentially limitless spending power. So you need a manager who's going to be able to punch above the weight while, you know, that we're in this kind of status quo. So I think on the, the question you mentioned before, Dan, about possible successes, I actually had a look um, in preparation at the odds. Um, and Gerard's the favourite. don't think that's surprising. Six to four, he's on. Um, then Pep Linders at three to one. Um, Javi Alonso is on there at eight to one, third favourite. Then Nagelsmann, Simeone, Deschamps, Allegri. There's some great names on there. Um, to be fair, I think my favourites are Milner at 25 to one and Buvak. <laughs> Buvak at 33 to one. Um, you know, obviously, we did all we did go horribly downhill after Buvak left, like everyone feared. Um, yeah. I think Linders has a shot at it though. Um, you can either look at it as high risk because he doesn't have the experience or low risk as safe pair of hand, Klopp's lieutenant. Um, and realistically, I think he's already managing Liverpool's domestic cup game. So they're the kind of names in the frame. Obviously, there could well be someone that emerges in the in the next three years, though. Yeah, I think out of those names, I think Nagelsmann's someone who I would like, if I'm honest. Um, and I know Linders has been floated previously, um, maybe as a successor, but... I think obviously the ideal for every single Liverpool fan, Liverpool fan is Gerard. Um, I'd just like to see him do probably one or two more years in Scotland and then maybe get some Premier League managerial experience under his belt. Um, I'll come to you, Tom, just to quickly have a comment on that. Who would you suggest out of those names we've mentioned or somebody different? I mean, it's got to be uh, Nagelsmann for me. Got to be. He's the. Yeah. Hopefully, he'll be at a point where he'll be kind of ready to leave Bayern and hopefully will be the obvious choice. I mean, he's he's just the obvious name. Yeah. Um, Linders would be interesting um, maybe not the best choice and, and personally I don't think Gerard's ready we'll see in three years he might be but I would be very worried if we gave it to Gerard just because he's Steven Gerrard personally I, I, I don't like that style of picking manager 
No, well, we've seen where that's got other clubs, haven't we? Um, but that'll be about all we've got time for um, this week. So, Tom, yourself, uh, anything you want to plug before we leave? Twitter handle will be in the description as ever. Um, yeah, no, nothing really. Um, I'm not doing lots of hands-on journalism at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm moving to a more teaching role, which is quite fun. So nothing I, nothing I really need to plug podcast-wise, just that Liverpool are going to win the league. <laughs> that'll do for us. Uh, massive thanks for joining us. Um, really good, really appreciate it. And it was nice to have a chat about what could be the future, even though it was a little bit difficult to hear at times in terms of Klopp leaving. No, brilliant chat. And we'll be back again next week with episode 33. Thanks for listening.